0: (laughs) this is interesting we good okay um let's start this over the uh the great football coach vince lombardi uh, of the packers back in the day was known even after championship seasons to start each year uh the same way and he would come in uh With his men all gathered around and he would hold up a football and he would say, men, this is a football. And then they would start the year. Uh, No matter where you think you are in the faith, it's good to be reminded of the basics. The reason uh, we gather here at Cross Training and the reason that we are the church is because we are a group of empowered believers who focus on the person and work of Christ uh, and what he has done on the cross and the mission of Christ. And so we spent several months walking through the book of Hebrews that focused on the person and work of Christ, and uh, we have been in the last two and a half months walking through 1 Samuel in the Old Testament talking about the mission of Christ. And so our theme uh, for this whole series is called Jesus is King. Now you don't hear Jesus' name uh, in 1 Samuel, but We know that the primary theme for 1 Samuel is the Israelites as a nation, God's chosen people, wanting a king. They had God himself to guide and direct them, but they wanted a king like the other nations had a king. And so they asked for one and they got one. And in the first 10 chapters, we see God give them Samuel, a prophet in the land. After they went several hundred years through the book of Judges, uh, they had judges, but they didn't have a prophet, and they, they were spiritually uh, needing some refreshment. And so Samuel came, and Samuel was not enough for them, and they said, give us a king like the other nations. And so tonight, we're going to be walking through 1 Samuel chapter 10, all 27 verses. We try to hit uh, a chapter a week. Sometimes we slow down a little bit, um, so we'll cover a bunch of verses today, but <clears throat> it'll be important to know. Uh, right off the bat, Saul is finally, after last week and the week before that, talking about God's call on his life to become the king, the first king of the Israelite nation. He's finally becoming king tonight. And uh, and so the theme for us is to engage in God's mission. Engage in God's mission and what that looks like for us. So when you become a believer, there's a lot of new Uh, things happening. You're learning who God is. You're learning about who you are in light of who God is. You're learning about his commandments. You're learning about uh, what he cares about, and, and for some people, they can spend their entire lives not recognizing that God has called them to be a part of something so much bigger that they miss out, for the most part, uh, of God's power and, and, and the, the tangible presence in their life because they don't take mission serious, and God's mission for all believers is to make disciples, so when we talk about mission, we're talking about each one of you playing a part in this bigger plan right here in Salina, Kansas, to influence people for Christ whether it's through serving them, uh, whether it's through teaching, walking with them to influence one another for Christ. And so Saul, he comes uh, to this place where he's finally anointed as the the king of Israel, and he has a hard time dealing with it. And so as you look at your own life, uh, there's a lot of change that happens when you jump in, when you engage in God's plan for you, mission for us. Uh, Some of it is change because you're leaving your old life, and that's hard. Uh, because sometimes uh, we have fond memories of our old life, and then we have changed because we're adjusting to a new life in Christ, and between the two, it can be hard to handle, and for Saul, he gets overwhelmed tonight in this, and you'll see how he responds to this major calling on his life. I remember, and I've shared before, uh, I remember when I became a believer and I caught on to the mission part of Christianity really quick. I loved the idea of having purpose. I sought purpose. I thought, God, I, I don't even know if you're there. Um, I, just, I just know I need purpose in my life. And that's what, that's what God used to draw me to himself in the first place. And um, within a year or so, I found myself engaging in God's mission. And I was so scared. And I was anxious to do it. But I found myself being used of God in different ways to minister to people. Even though I was insecure with my own knowledge, I didn't grow up in the church. I was 22 years old and, and just scared. Uh, but I remember going to school as a firefighter, or to be a firefighter, and my family liked the idea of that. And I remember uh, about a year into my walk with Christ, I had finished up my school down in Hutch to, to again, in fire science to be a firefighter, and I called my dad up, and him and I had never had a spiritual conversation in our lives, and I called him up. He was at work at K-State, and he was busy, but but he took a little bit of time for me, and I think he was expecting I was going to give him some good news that I got hired maybe on as a firefighter somewhere, and I said, well, um, I'm going to go back to school uh, for ministry, now, he doesn't even know I'm a believer. He knows I like, kind of go to church and stuff, but like he doesn't know anything else. And now I'm telling him that I'm going to school for ministry. And on the other end of the line, it was silence. And then I just heard a, and he said, Ryan, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. That was his response. It would have been easy for me to, uh, to bow down to that kind of pressure. And to just say, you know what, maybe I just need to go back to what my family had planned for me. What I thought my life was going to turn out to be. But I, I knew uh, in life you're going to get overwhelmed one way or the other. And I was overwhelmed with God's call and, and power in my life. And so I started walking uh, down that path. And so for you, as we walk through this tonight, I hope God calls you. Uh, I, hope God, I hope God prompts you. I hope he moves in your heart. And I, I want you to ask yourself the question, am I reorienting my life to be a part of God's plan, to be in God's mission, because he can use you and wants to use you right now. So let's jump on in. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Got a whole bunch of verses to cover. Verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. On his would be Saul's head. Remember, Saul had just uh, been told the night before that he was going to be king, and so this is all brand new poured it out on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Remember, a few lost donkeys is what led Saul to to meet up with Samuel in the first place. Verse 3. Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. And after that, you shall come to Gibeoth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre. Before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will f- prophesy with them and be turned into another man. This is getting good, isn't it? Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. In seven days you shall wait. Until I come to you and show you what you shall do, all right? Tonight we're going to see four things we got to embrace. Um, that'd be four things we got to embrace uh, when it comes to engaging in God's mission. The first thing that we got to embrace is the process. So, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Saul, having just been revealed the night before in this feast with all these other guys, Samuel's saying, there's something awesome that God's going to do in your life. And, and he's probably overwhelmed by that. And he wakes up and he's getting ready to go back to his dad and talk about these lost donkeys that he was uh, on a journey to find. And now <laughs> this is in the morning being revealed to him that he's going to be, he's going to be prince. He's going to be the king. Keep in mind, it'll say over and over, uh, prince, 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 but it just means to rule over. And so king and prince are used synonymously. I got to imagine that Saul had other things and other plans uh, for that day. Like, he probably had projects he was working on prior to this whole journey. He had things going on. He's not thinking to himself that God's going to get a hold of me. Remember, because he's spiritually inept. Like, he doesn't know much about God at all, doesn't even recognize Samuel as a prophet. And yet, here he is, finding that God is not only getting a hold of him, but making him king over all of Israel. Got to be freaking him out. It's got to be freaking him out. But Saul, he's got to embrace the process because it's weird for him, right? We're talking about anointing. We're talking about prophesying, the Spirit of the Lord rushing over him. He doesn't even know anything about the Spirit of the Lord, right? And now he's getting all of these signs from God, and it's got to be crazy. You see, God has a process for each one of us. And to some degree, there are some core elements that you know are going to be part of this process. When God draws you in to engage in his plan and his mission, but for the most part, each one of us, it's going to be unique in the way that it looks, right? So some of the core elements that you know for each one of us, we know God's going to have. For all believers, this is going to be part of the process. He's going to save you, right? There's people all over the place. They come to churches all the time wanting to know God's plan, God's purpose for my life. And nobody's pulled them aside and said, you've got to confess Jesus as Lord. Like Step one is getting saved. And so they're looking for God's purpose and plan, trying to still do it on their own. And he's not going to give you a plan that doesn't include Jesus as Lord and Savior. Amen. And so that's that's the first step. You know, that's going to be a part of it. And when that happens, we experience what we call regeneration, being born again, receiving a new heart and becoming a new person. So. The Holy Spirit, then, is given to all believers. So you know you're going you're gonna to place your faith in Jesus. You know the Spirit of God is going to dwell inside of you. It's going to empower you. And then through the rest of your life, um, and this is why it looks a little bit different for each one of us, God's going to prepare you. He's going to equip you. He's going to have other people affirm and see things in you as you are serving the kingdom. And so God puts the church community around you, not only for you to serve them, but for them to recognize God's doing something in your life. This is the blessing. And this is the problem for most of uh, those who are seeking God's purpose across, uh, apart from salvation and apart from the church. Is God saying, I'm going to tell you what I want for your life, but it's going to be with Jesus as Lord and his people around you. And so he doesn't want you to be rogue. Like that's not the way God designs it. His very call for each life is to be in community, and through community, he reveals to us. Again, it looks different for each one of us, but those are some core components. Now, we've got to say this when we talk about God's process for you. When we say process, this could be a lifelong process, right? It's not necessarily a week or two kind of a deal, but his process for you is one that both includes him wanting to use you right now and prepping you for future callings. So that's the the crazy thing about following Jesus, is he's saying, listen, you're not yet ready for what I got for you tomorrow, but I want you to focus on what I've got for you today. And so you might feel insecure. You might feel like you can't do anything for the kingdom of God. This whole spiritual stuff, it's brand new to you. It's maybe weird, and you're just getting to know Jesus. And he's saying, listen, I know this is our first date, but I want you to go on a mission trip overseas with me. And you're like, I'm not ready to go overseas with you. We just started having dinner tonight, and it's weird. you you got to know he wants to use you right where you are. And some people put off ever serving the kingdom because they don't ever feel adequate to serve, but his Holy Spirit's what makes you adequate not your own giftings and abilities. Matter of fact, he'll develop them a lot of times as you start taking steps of faith. So this passage that we see, and we're going to jump into it and really kind of spend a little time in it, because you see different elements. It's a, it's a charismatics dream, right? We're talking about uh, some things that, that our Pentecostal brothers and sisters love to highlight in the local church. Um, imagine some of you either come from a background, whether it be Assemblies of God or uh, Foursquare, even here in town. There's lots of different denominations that highlight things like anointing and, and prophesying and uh, experiencing different signs from God. And so we want to talk about those elements and whether or not you can expect them in your life. And so keep in mind, I'm, I'm saying this with knowing that I can't do these topics justice because we could talk all night about each one of them. But let's let's hit um, each each one of them. Let's start with anointing. So right off in the bat, in the first couple verses, it says that a, a flask of oil was taken from Samuel, poured out over Saul. It's got to be crazy for someone who's not used to it. Now keep in mind, in the Near Eastern culture, uh, a lot of it came from. Egypt but what they would do is the Egyptian kings would have um, many different rulers and they would anoint those who were actually going to lead and rule in some capacity but they would be under the king and so to some degree you can see uh, just from a cultural standpoint God saying listen I'm going to make you king but you're not really king (laughs) like I'm still king and I'm going to anoint you so that you know a physical affirmation of what I'm doing inwardly and what I'm saying to be true so anointing is, is God's uh, divine claim on your life. An anointing is God's empowerment for the task that he's calling you to do. And some churches will, will have oil and they will uh, anoint you when they pray. Uh, they'll anoint you uh, in, in different ways. Obviously, we use it in, in different contexts. James chapter 5, if those of you who are sick, like call the elders, they'll come and they'll anoint you with oil. They'll pray over you so that you'll be well. But do you need to be anointed with oil for the call that God has on your life? I think that's a legit question. And I would say this. I would say no. Uh, If someone does anoint you with oil, all right, if you grew up in that background, that's okay. I don't think it's a a horrible thing. But I would say no in this. What is oil going to do for you that the Holy Spirit in you can't do? What power does oil have? And, And for many who anoint with oil, they know that, Oil is simply the physical representation of what's happening inwardly. When God places His Holy Spirit in you, and He does for all believers, we see that in Acts chapter 3. Peter says, This is for all to come. You can't get any more anointed than having God's Holy Spirit in you. So you can think to yourself, I've got to be more equipped. I've got to have a special blessing on me to do what God's asked me to do. And I'm telling you, you, don't get any more special than the Holy Spirit. It's been given to you. So rest assured. What about the next one? You see, Saul. He has uh, some signs that happen. Now, there's three or four steps. these signs, and you'll see a a spiritual progression in them, and and I'll just mention them. The first one was the donkeys he was looking for, and he says, go, and these two men will uh, meet you, and they'll tell you that the donkeys are okay. So right off the bat, uh, the first sign is God saying, it's okay. Don't worry about provision. If I call you to something, I'm going to take care of what you're worried about today, okay? And and then the next one is three men carrying some wine and some bread and some goats up to a place of worship. And so you see the spiritual progression from God's going to meet your basic needs when he calls you. Uh, even though these signs are specific to Saul's life, God gives us signs that are specific to our calling. And, and he says then this, this sign of um, men going up to worship God and Saul's joining in. He was spiritually inept. Now God's going to fill him with his Holy Spirit and he's going to be a spiritual man. And then you see uh, these guys getting together um, and prophesying. So you see God giving uh, an outpouring of his spirit in the form of gifts for what God is calling him to do. And we'll see in the next." Part of this passage, him starting to prophesy. So let me say this about signs. I would imagine everyone in here at some point in your life has desperately wanted a sign from God. God, I know you got a next step for me. Give me a sign. Show me something. Like, I mean, let's be honest. How many of us have wanted that? Even like if you're brand new to the faith, even if you don't even believe you're looking for signs, 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 signs. I would say this. Can God show you outward signs? Certainly, and he may very well do it. I'd keep your eyes open for him. But I think our generation, when we're talking about New Testament signs... Our generation needs to be far more concerned when God calls us to leadership about the inward signs laid out in the New Testament than the outward physical signs that affirm what he's saying. Because here's the thing, you can look for outward physical signs of God says, okay, I'm going to show you literally to go left because there's a mudslide that's going to cut off the right lane. Like, you could get that, and what does that do? That, that helps you to understand what's happening, but it doesn't cost you nothing. But God's given us in First uh, and 2 Timothy, in Titus, and First and 2 Peter. Peter and Paul, the authors of those books, have told us, for those called to leadership, inward signs, characteristics that those people are going to have as God qualifies them for leadership. They're going to be men uh, of but one wife. They're not going to be out for sordid gain. They're going to be men of self-control. They're going to be hospitable. Uh, they're going to be lovers of good and not evil they're going to be gentle they're going to be respectable they're going to be all kinds of things and i think our generation particularly young folks need to worry more if we're going to worry at all we need to think more about what god is saying is an inward sign of my calling on your life than the next outward sign that we're looking for all the time because you can work on your character today while you're waiting for the outward sign tomorrow and so i think we need to worry um Worry is not a good word. I think we need to focus on those inward signs. So then what's the next one? Prophecy. So these guys are all prophesying. And again, we're going to talk more about prophecy here in the next bit of the passage. But what marked an Old Testament prophet? What marked an Old Testament prophet? Well, there were lots of things. What they had to say had to come true if it was of God. But but one thing that marked them more than anything else was that they had a message. Old Testament prophets had a message. Can you expect to be prophesying when God gives a call or puts, uh, puts you in, in, when he engages you with his mission? Well, maybe, maybe you'll find yourself out there prophesying. It's not like it couldn't happen. But here's the thing. Old Testament prophets were marked by a message. We got a message too. The second you say, ah, Jesus, I want to follow you. And he says, boom, you got the Holy Spirit now. You're ready to make disciples. You can teach them how to follow Jesus as you're learning how to follow Jesus You need a message, and you've got the message. It's called the gospel, the very message that saved you. So every single one of us, although we're not prophets per se, we have the message that we need. We have the message. And then the last one said that the Holy Spirit would rush over him as all this is happening. So you see this spiritual progression. Finally the Holy Spirit rushes over him. I want to make a couple distinctions uh, for you guys if you're unfamiliar with how the Holy Spirit was given and received Old Testament to New Testament. Old Testament um, it was received in a few different ways that that are important uh, compared to the, the New Testament. So Old Testament God gave his Holy Spirit to some people but not all people. So there were people who sought him and we don't get the impression that every single person had God's Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, again, Acts chapter 3, we see the Holy Spirit is given to all who believe. So some, not all. Second thing you see is the Holy Spirit often fell on people. And although you do see that in the New Testament, in Pentecost, um, the Holy Spirit dwells in believers in the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit comes on oftentimes, Not I'm speaking generalities in the Old Testament, and then comes in believers in the New Testament. Another difference, the Holy Spirit was temporary in many cases when given to believers in the Old Testament, and it's permanent. It's a deposit. It's a seal on your life in the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit's given to everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord, and he's given until Jesus comes back. He is tied to end times, and he is living inside of you. So, can you expect to be filled with the Holy Spirit when God calls you? Yeah, you can expect it. But let me say this. I knew, I, I told you we were going to park on this for a while. Let me say this. Verses 7 and 8, Samuel gives uh, Saul some final instructions in telling him what to do. A called life is marked by obedience. You may leave here tonight you may leave every Bible study we ever do a little bit unsure as to what exactly God's specific plan for your life is. Listen, you can think about it all day long, but a call to life, a Christian life, is marked by obedience. And Samuel was given Saul an opportunity to be obedient. Don't worry about the process he has for you, but embrace it. Be patient and know that he's doing a work in you. Verses 9 and 10. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these th- signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. So Samuel told him what was going to happen, and now Saul's actually experiencing it. And when, and when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, "And who is their father?" Therefore it became a proverb, "Is Saul also among the prophets?" So they were doubting how Saul and how he could be prophesying because he was not known as a prophet. When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place, and Saul's uncle said to him, excuse me, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. And when he saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Oh, don't you want to be part of a family where they're worried like crazy because they might think you're dead, gone, something's happened. And the second you tell them, hey, I'm okay, but God spoke. And they're like, (laughs) okay, let's just hear what God said. Let's just hear the word of God. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So he's hiding it. Saul isn't telling his family about God's calling on his life. You know, when you're a little bit insecure, you hate to put it on paper, right? When you're a little bit insecure, you hate to be held accountable. What if this wasn't God? What if somehow that prophet got it wrong? What if he's not really telling me to do this? Because this is crazy. Second thing you've got to embrace, if you're going to engage God's mission, you embrace the process, but you also got to embrace the life change that's going to come with it. Because there's going to be life change. There's going to be life change. So it said back there uh, at the beginning of, of this passage, it said that when he turned around and, and when he took a step, that he received a new heart. Now, we see in Ezekiel 36, we see in Jeremiah chapter 31, we see in John 3, this idea of what we call regeneration. When you place your faith in Jesus, you are, uh, you are born again spiritually. And the Old Testament says, the new covenants marked by men and women who receive a new heart, a new spiritual heart. You're a brand new creation. And so Saul experiences this. He's a brand new guy. Now, Although the first step of faith is where you experience that, how many of us have found ourselves still pretty insecure about what God's doing? How many of us have thought, okay, listen, I know I confess Jesus as Lord, but I don't know that he can use me, and I feel pretty insecure about him uh, really working in my life. I'm telling you what, this is where most of us <laughs> this is where most of us stall out after that first step of faith, and some people stay in the kiddie pool uh, their entire lives when it comes to God's plan and mission because they they took that step of faith and it was enough for them to say, I believe I'm a Christian, but not enough to experience the presence of God in a powerful way. They think, well, I think I've got God in me, but I don't don't know that I'm going to be used of him. Listen, you want to see life change. It usually doesn't come always in in, in step one. Um, It spiritually has happened in step one, but tangible life change Happens in steps two, three, four, five down the line. That's where a lot of us experience God's power. You've got to keep walking by faith. Remember, <laughs> righteous walk by faith, not just take one step and then park in the pew until Jesus comes back. They walk by faith. And Saul, he's walking by faith. He's prophesying with these guys, and people are starting to recognize things are happening. This guy is different. This guy is different. You see, not only will you start to experience God's presence more in steps two, three, four, and five when you're walking by faith, but others will notice life change. Some of you, you know, you've got stories, people in your life, family, friends, who they've said, you're not like you used to be. Something's different in you. And you're kind of like, oh, I think that's a good thing. Is that a good thing? You're not looking at me like you like the new me but it's a good thing. Do people see that life change in you? Do people see transformation in you? I think a lot of times we use an excuse for a lack of sanctification, a lack of becoming more like Jesus and less like ourselves, which is a process we're in for the rest of our lives, right? I think think many of us who say, well, I I placed my faith in Jesus when I was a child, and so I've kind of always known this. Sometimes, Make that an excuse for not seeing transformation when they're 20, when they're 30, when they're 40. Because they've always known God. And it's like, why, even if you've been following him for 30 years, does he not want to absolutely change you in powerful ways from the age 45 to 46? Or 21 to 22? Or it, Like, where did we come to the place where we thought, okay, God's Holy Spirit is incredibly powerful and it's living inside of me, but there was some change early on. I'm just kind of riding it out now. Many of us wouldn't say that's what we're doing, but that's kind of what we're doing. Like, do you expect him to transform you today? Because even if you find yourself acting more holy than you used to be, there's always change to be had. And I I see oftentimes the temptation for all of us is to err um, on one extreme of transformation or the other. What I mean is, many of us experience inward transformation but not necessarily outward. So inward, we focus on this communion that we have with God, and and we find ourselves maybe uh, just changed in the way that we feel. We have peace, we have joy, and, and we see our character changed, and it's beautiful. We see ourselves handling stress differently. We find ourselves handling situations differently. It's an inward change that we're loving, and it's beautiful. And then some people err just on the side of outward change. Okay, this is more where I've probably erred if I were to err on one, side or the other, where their purpose and passion and direction in life is obviously different than their old life. They're like, you're a pastor now. You're a missionary now. You care about God now. But here's the problem. If you see a lot of change, inwardly or outwardly, but you neglect the other one, knowing they flow together, it's going to be incomplete. If if you only care about the inward change, the kingdom of God doesn't expand outside of your own heart. If all you care about is your own communion with God and how he's changed you and how you don't act like you used to and things are good, if you don't let that flow into your influence of the people around you, your coworkers, your family, your friends, you're keeping the kingdom of God confined to your own heart and soul. And although that's a beautiful work, that's sad that it's confined. That's sad that it's confined. And if you only focus on the outward transformation and you're all about purpose and, man, you're a missionary now and it's good and we're out planting churches and we're making disciples all that good stuff, you can do it and be a jerk. (laughs) You can do it and be a jerk. You can be preaching and teaching and be a punk. And, of course, that loses credibility in what you're saying if they don't see the inward transformation in your own life. But the Holy Spirit wants to do both together. I um I love summertime for a lot of reasons, but like in the middle of summer when it gets really hot, there's uh, several weeks, maybe even a month or so, where you hear this beautiful sound. Let me let me see now. I don't have we don't have the speaker here, um, but let me let me see if I can bring it up and you recognize this sound right here. You re- anybody recognize the sound? See those little critters? After years of it and there's your BBC experience. Cicadas or cicadas. I'll call them cicadas because that's what I always did growing up. These little, little locust things that shed their shell all over on the trees, but they make this sound at night. Just this buzzing sound, this rattling that like you recognize all around. Like it marks childhoods of those who grew up in Kansas, right? You hear these things. You, If you're like a creepy little kid, you collected the shells, you know? Uh, <laughs> come on, a few of us did that. But I love that sound because it sounds like summer, right? Here's the thing. You hear that for a, a few weeks in the summer, this beautiful sound. But what a lot of us don't know or certainly see is that each one of those little guys spent 17 years burrowed underground before their two or three or four weeks of glory. 17 years burrowed underground. Oftentimes, burrowed by tree roots, and the sap from those roots would nourish them and grow them and feed them for 17 years. and they don't know exactly why, even though they recognize that these little insects, they know that, that they recognize when it's, uh, the seasons change because the sap changes, but they don't know why after 17 years, instinctually, why they all of a sudden come out of these holes, crawl up the tree, and then they break out of their shells, and then they sing this beautiful song. But all we see them for is this outward change and yet how many of us knew that they were underground for 17 years connected to the roots being nourished in an incubation stage that was incredibly important for their two or three weeks of glory without the incubation stage they're not singing their little song that gives us ooey gooey's inside that makes us think this is summertime in Kansas because you know that's the only reason they're created right (laughs) so that we have that feeling some of us right now want to know the next step we want to know God what is the next step in the process I need something else revealed and God's saying I got a process going on in your life all of your circumstances everything I've put you through I am in the process of changing you and molding you you just got to focus and be okay and be patient with the incubation stage because Jesus, if I gave, and I told you this a couple weeks ago, if I, if I sent my son to earth and said he's going to for 30 years hang out and just be faithful and obedient, and no one's going to talk much about that for three years of ministry, how much more do you need to embrace the incubation stage in your own life? If the apostle Paul, who we know as this missionary and this amazing dude, if you see in Acts and then Galatians, he had 14 years Between his salvation and then the core of his ministry starting. 14 years where he went away into the desert and went back to his hometown and just gathered himself in Christ. Connected to the source and foundation of our faith. You got to embrace. If you want God's plan to be lived out, you got to embrace the fact that He wants you connected and abiding in Him. And sometimes it's not that fun. (laughs) Sometimes it's not that glorious. Sometimes it doesn't make Christianity News Today front page. Like sometimes it's just persevering. It's not what you wanted today, but it's what you needed. And it's beautiful. And in the process of those 17 years, <laughs> for your 17 years, whatever that looks like, you realize this is what it was all about to begin with. And when he calls you, he's going to make that ministry even more effective than ever before. But you've got to embrace that process. Embrace that life change. Verse 17. Now, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, you need to know this. Uh, This is one of those things I probably wouldn't share if it was a Sunday morning, but this is more of a Bible study thing. And so this is the good stuff that you don't think about because you want to put yourself in Saul's position, right? Mizpah doesn't sound like a wonderful place. Doesn't seem like it has a bunch of meaning. Samuel would go um, from place to place. He had four or five places he would go to minister, and Mizpah was one of them. But Saul was a Benjamite. Okay, and he said, remember last chapter, that this is the least of the cl- tribes of Israel, um, and he's in the least of the clans, and he's just the lowliest guy on the totem pole. If you see way back in Judges chapter 20, this crazy story about the 12 tribes of Israel, this guy who comes into uh, Gibeah, which is a main place in the Benjamin's territory, and he gets, um, his concubine gets raped, and he chops her into pieces, Remember this crazy story? Chops her into pieces and sends all the pieces of her body to the other 11 tribes and say, this is what we've become as the nation of Israel. Do something, step up. And so they step up and they crush Benjamin. They make this little part of Israel, um, they make this tribe almost nothing and it was on the verge of being extinct. And so that happened, that crushing of Benjamin happened at Mizpah hundreds of years earlier, but you know that Saul, knowing his ancestry, has got to know, I'm about to be anointed king over all of Israel in the same place that my tribe almost became extinct because of our immorality. <laughs> He's got, I got butterflies going on because this is awkward now. I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today... You have rejected your God. Doesn't sound like a party anymore, does it? Not much of a celebration. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So they're casting stones, essentially. And it's narrowing down to Saul. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So he 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 took the flight, but he ain't leaving baggage claim. He is scared to death. He's on that little twisty-turny thing, just going around, tucking his head underneath. You he don't want to come out. Then they ran and took him from there. Like they, they ran and physically had to take him. This is your king, Israel. This is what you wanted. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Long live the king. The third thing you've got to embrace when you engage God's mission is you've got to embrace the challenge. You've got to embrace the challenge. So this is Saul's <laughs> coming out party. And the first thing that Samuel says, you got to picture Saul's like, okay, I'm kind of anxious, a little bit nervous, haven't been king before, still unsure what's happening. And Samuel kicks off the party by saying, hey, Israel, y'all have been cursed by God because you wanted a king when you just had God himself to be your king. Saul (laughs) is being introduced as the curse given to Israel. Like, you are such a bunch of punks. You're going to get this guy. Like, he's going to rule over you. Talk about uh, a hit to the old confidence, right? You want to be insecure. You, you get introduced that way, right? In your own coronation, then you're hiding in the baggage claim, and you've got to be drug out. And yet still, even in the midst of this embarrassing first impression, Samuel says, do you recognize that he is unique here for the task? Remember, throughout all the Old Testament, the height of the kings was only mentioned uh, when we see other nations. But Israel asked for a king like the other nations. And so this king is a foot taller than all y'all, and he's going to be your king. But he's unique and set apart specific for this task. And it's going to be a challenge. If you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 21, um, it said that a man hanging on a tree is cursed. And so we see in the New Testament, Jesus became a curse for you and I by dying on the cross. And it wasn't until after his resurrection that his own disciples saw him in a new light revealed by the Holy Spirit that he was uniquely set apart to be the Savior and Messiah. They were with him, and they didn't even know how gifted he was. They were with him, and they didn't even know he was God. They saw his perfection and didn't even know he was perfect. They had heard and been told, but it just didn't quite register. Because you can hear all day long and still be spiritually blind. And God's doing a work in you, Not only do you have to be patient on one hand, but on the other hand, you got to be ready to step up when he calls you out. It's easy to put yourself over in the baggage claim and just say, you know what, I'm patient, he's doing a work, but I don't ever expect him to call me to something really big. So I'm just going to sit here, learn the Bible, learn about God. I'm going to try to obey him, but he's never going to use me in a big, powerful way. And if you sit here saying, I believe he's going to do something big, please, God, tell me something huge before I start next semester because I don't want to enroll in school anymore if you got something bigger, right? Like, reveal it quick. And God's saying, you need to be patient. You've got to be both patient and ready to step up at any moment. I think it's built into most of us, certainly myself. We all seek challenge, right? We might not love school, but we like being challenged mentally. We might not always love sports, but we love to be challenged physically. We love challenge. In the church, it's been, said, <laughs> it's been said that the church doesn't have a mission, but the mission was given the church. That God, as ascending God, knew what he was going to call his people to from the beginning of time. And it's not that we have a mission, but the mission has us that it's given, that we're part of something bigger. You think about challenge and how crazy is it that the church is is sometimes uh, at least perceived as the least challenged group of people out there. You see uh, secular organizations, all the clubs that each city has, and some of them have more mission (laughs) than the local church. How much more challenging does it get to look at this nation? Some of you, you watch the news. And to think, man, the kingdom of God's got to expand, and we're God's plan A. Like, How much more challenge do you need? I'm going to tell you this. If you don't believe this challenge is big, and you've tucked your head away, And you're like, well, I'm not watching the news. I don't want to hear about all the unbelief and the immorality and the craziness, because that would make it challenging. If you've tucked your head away from that, just think of this. What in the world, knowing God gave his Holy Spirit into his own son, and that spirit raised him from the dead and then given to us, and Jesus says, you will do works even greater than this. He says in John 16, it's going to be good for you when I go away, because one greater than me is going to come. Like, that's what he says about the Holy Spirit. Ask yourself this, would God give his Holy Spirit to a wimpy cause? Because he's not just filling you to seal you for the end of time. He's filling you with his Holy Spirit to empower you for a mission today. And he doesn't give his spirit to wimpy causes. He gives his spirit to the greatest challenge mankind will ever face. And that's spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. Think about this room. Like, this is why I get so excited when you come here. I know you get excited, right? I can see it on your faces. You're all so incredibly excited. But think about it. Think about it. Assuming most of you, uh, you confess Jesus as Lord. And we're going to see each other in heaven. Although we're going to be consumed singing, holy, holy, holy. We'll pretend we have a moment or two to chat about what happened back on earth. From this day on, What's going to happen with the group of people here tonight when it comes to kingdom impact? No, we see the city the way it is, but we believe God wants to save this city. What, What does it look like from this night until the day we're sitting in heaven looking at each other? Think about what could happen if God's people got excited and serious about his mission. Think about the legacy. Think about the change here. We don't save people, but God's saying, I want you to get excited about it because I'm working through you. What could happen? What what preachers and teachers in this room don't know they're going to be preachers and teachers, but if they're open to God's call, they're going to see something crazy happen in the next few years? What if Jesus says, nah, I'm done at age 29? What if Saul says, what if Paul says, you know what? Got saved, it was cool, but I'm not. 13 years after my salvation, I'm just going to be quiet for a while. And we don't know the greatest missionary that ever lived. And yet, here we are tonight, and you've got a decision like we do all the time. You've got a decision. Am I going to accept the challenge that right now, with the people God has put me around, I can influence them for Christ? I can take a step that is uncomfortable. I don't know all that I feel like I should know, but I can help move them in the direction. I can, I can minister to them. And even if I don't think it, I'm just going to take a step and see what happens. What's the difference between this city being completely saved? Every one of them glorifying God, saying Jesus is Lord over Salina, Kansas, and not. You know at the end of the first century, it's estimated there was only 50,000 Christians. And by the end of the fourth, 300 years later, there were 34 million that 50,000 was excited about their faith and it cost them something and they knew about challenge and they made disciples that made disciples that made disciples and if they got scattered because of persecution they made disciples and if they got to stay at home they made disciples and their faith was real Spurgeon says (laughs) a Christian not engaged in God's mission is simply a spectator There's so much potential. Last but not least, we'll wrap it up with this. So we embrace the process. We embrace life change. We embrace something else. Challenge. You're good. See, that was a test. I wanted to see if you guys were taking notes. And then these last couple verses. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Remember, several chapters back, God told Samuel what the rights and duties of kingship were, and it was not good. It was, hey, he's going to make you all slaves to him. He's going to take your animals. He's going to make you serve him. It's going to be slavery for you. You still want that? Like, yeah, give it to us. So like this verse, you could just blow by it. But it's kind of a downer. And they're still wanting Saul as king. And then the last two verses. And Saul went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Last thing we see, when it comes to God's calling in your life, when it comes to embracing his mission, you've got to embrace like-minded people. You've got to embrace like-minded people. You don't have to do this alone. And although it might feel lonely, you don't have to do this alone. Saul's got to be feeling insecure. At this point, he just goes back to his home. You almost feel a little bit sorry for him, yet God didn't leave him alone. He sent men of valor. This is men of strength. So it's the beginnings of a military. God knows what he's called him to. The primary job for Saul is to take care of the Philistines and beat them uh, with a military, and he sent some men to kick it off to help get that started. But then on the flip side, he says, there's some worthless guys who are punks, and they're saying, God just revealed all that, but we don't care. Doesn't mean nothing. Talk about a huge difference between verse 26 and 27. You got men who love, and and they're going to fight for Saul, and they follow him wherever he goes, and then you got haters. You know whatever God calls you to, you're not going to please everyone. That's the thing about God's calling is it's his calling, not your calling, right? If it's your calling, you're not following Jesus, you're following yourself. And so when he tells you to do something, whether it's to pick up and move across the world or to simply make disciples in the city, equally important, it's not going to please everybody. And there might be people that love you and have supported you their whole lives. They may even call themselves Christians. And if they don't recognize God's spirit moving in your life and they don't like this kind of change, they don't like you being on mission, they might not only stunt some growth, but they might try to stifle what he's doing. You wouldn't think this is the case, but it happens all the time. It happens all the time. There's a lot of believers who don't recognize the movement of God. And so they get scared. They get scared when things start to change. But God's going to send the right people to be around you because whatever he calls you to do, he's never going to call you out of the church, right? Like whatever God calls you to do, he's going to call you to serve the people, but the very people he called you to serve are going to act maybe today, maybe years from now as beacons of encouragement for you. That's the beauty of the church. The very people you come to serve will be serving you. And so it's a beautiful thing to know how that works. I think the key is knowing there's going to be haters, there's going to be people wanting to stop whatever God's asking you to do in life, no matter how risky and crazy it is, it's important to have the men of valor around you before the haters come. Because they're going to help. I remember when I was called to seminary, and I I was scared. We'd never lived um, out of state, and we were still pretty new in marriage, and I didn't know what seminary was going to be like. I didn't know if I could handle it academically, mentally. But I thought, man, if God calls me to do it, it's going to be okay. And we left all our family and friends. And I remember just trusting God that he was going to put us in the right situation, the right people. But I didn't think much about it. And I went to my very first class, and I sat down, and I started talking to the guy to my left. And the guy in front of me turned around, and we started talking. And we just didn't stop talking. Kind of, I mean, for the rest of the class we did. But we became best friends. And for the next couple years as we were out there, even though they're from Buffalo, New York, and they're from Arkansas and another one from Mississippi, we just hung out and our families bonded and we shed tears together and we were in the trenches together and we served the people together because we all had the same calling on our life. And when you have a calling on your life, whatever specialty it might be in to make disciples, God's going to put like-minded people around you and if he doesn't in a way that you could recognize you got to go find them and, and me for me God had put those people around me and we just started talking and we latched on to each other and we still latched on to each other and although we've gone all around the country and some of them have gone all around the country I still talk to a couple of them on a regular basis one of them I talk to every couple of weeks and we encourage each other we pray for each other It's awesome to see what God's doing. And they run, he runs things by me and I run things by him. And it's just someone I know I can count on. But if I don't see him for years, we're still gonna click when I pick that phone up and call him. Because when you got like-minded people who are in the trenches with you, you connect on a whole nother level. That's what it's like. That's why when you go down to the VFW in your small town, Kansas, and you see these old-timers who maybe don't even know each other that well, but one of them says, I'm from the 176th Infantry Unit of whatever, whatever, this war, and another one says, I'm from the 43rd such-and-such paratroopers from this war. They connect, even if they weren't even in the same country, because soldiers know what soldiers do, and soldiers stick together. And the church should have some of those relationships. God's going to call you... Not only in a unique way, but he's going to call other people in the same way. And you've got to embrace those people. And the beauty of that is right now, there might be people in this room that you're simply getting to know, that you're sitting next to, that you're called to serve, and God's going to build such a strong bond between you that you're going to find encouragement for years and years to come. Don't come here on Wednesday nights expecting to to just get a word for yourself and go. There's community here. Embrace that. So when you leave here tonight, let me just say this. Submit to the call. You might be insecure, but just trust him. You wake up in the morning, you leave here tonight, Look for opportunities. The opportunities are here. You don't have to wait till next week. The opportunities are here. Listen. It's his spirit that's going to guide you and empower you. And then take a step of obedience and a step of faith. You're going to find your life marked by God's stories for his glory. And you're going to love it. You're going to love it. Let's pray.